Good morning, guys. Welcome. Man, I don't get how you can see Pastor Nick's muscles under such a baggy shirt, you know? It doesn't work that way for me. Uh, a few years ago, or several years ago, actually, uh, Alyssa and I were fortunate enough to spend a weekend in Zion National Park. And a beautiful place, one of our favorite trips ever. Uh, we had a great time. But the clear highlight of the trip was an unforgettable hike on a trail called Angel's Landing. And this is, by far, my favorite hike of all time. Now, Angel's Landing is, is a pretty interesting hike. It begins off not too difficult. It kind of a shaded, gradual incline along a creek. It kind of gets going, eases you in. But it begins to get more challenging as, as you make your way up the hike. You begin to climb up the mountain. Uh, at some point, there's a series of 21 switchbacks called Walter's Wiggles. Great name for a series of switchbacks. And this is more challenging, but it's still not anything too crazy. But after the switchback, the hike takes a dramatic turn. The trail opens up, and there before you is an awe-inspiring but intimidating sight. A steep, rocky climb uh, along a narrow ridge. Sheer drops on each side. Uh, there's a chain there for you to hold on to. And this all leads up to a, a viewpoint of the valley below. That's not me, by the way. That's random white guy from the internet. <laughs> but this point of the hike, when you look out at this spot, is called decision point. Because it's literally that. Here you have to kind of take a deep breath, accept the challenging reality before you, and decide, am I going to keep going? Am I going to go forward, to move forward, despite any of the fear or anxiety I'm feeling, despite the danger of this next phase? Uh, well, this morning we are continuing our series, Jesus the King. We're walking through the Gospel of Mark. And we've reached a point at the narrative that I think we could almost describe as the decision point of the Gospels. Last week we looked at Mark 8, which is a series of conversations between Jesus and his disciples. And this conversation changes the direction of Jesus' ministry. Jesus asks his disciples, hey, who do you think I am? What am I about? Why am I here? And Peter correctly identifies him as the Messiah, as this promised Savior and King. And Jesus says, you're right, but here's what that means. Immediately after Peter's confession, Jesus says, here's what it means for me to be the Messiah. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die this sacrificial death for the sake of others. And so it's here that, that Jesus' ministry begins to change, both thematically and geographically. He begins to move towards Jerusalem to move towards the cross, towards his sacrificial death. Now this turn is significant for who Jesus is, but it's also very significant for us, for Jesus' disciples. Because he invites his followers to go with him in this new direction. Mark 8.34, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus says, hey, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm about, and this is what it means to be my disciple. 
And so this is the part of the journey in the Gospels. This is the part of the journey as we explore who Jesus is where we have to take a deep breath, accept the challenging reality before us, and ask the question, do I want to keep going? Do I want to follow where Jesus is leading? And we never want to take for granted when we encounter a challenge like this, a passage like this, we don't want to take for granted that it is really difficult. It's easy to just say, hey, we should follow Jesus. It's easy to say, have faith. It's easy to say, love people radically and sacrificially. Give up your life for the sake of the kingdom. But we know that the reality is much harder. And so the question that we begin to wrestle with here in Mark 8 and 9, and really for the rest of the New Testament story is, how do we follow? How do we muster up the faith and courage to move forward on this hard road of discipleship? And those are hard questions that we want to continue to explore in the coming weeks. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to our passage for today. We're going to be looking at an interesting story from Mark chapter 9. Now before we dive into the passage, there is some important background that we want to cover before we dive in. Now, as I said, in last week's passage, Jesus literally and figuratively begins to move to the cross, turns towards this mission of suffering and death. He invites his disciples to follow. He says, if you're going to follow me, we're going to suffer. We're going to struggle. This is the hard road of discipleship. Let's, let's go. But then Mark says a mere six days later, he says within this same week, he's linking these events together. Jesus takes his three most trusted disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, and leads them up uh, the slopes of Mount Hermon. And when they reach the summit, they have this unbelievable, transcendent experience of the glory of God. Jesus lights up in brilliant, dazzling white. Mark says this is whiter, his, his clothes appear whiter than Anyone could bleach them. So this is like an unnatural level of whiteness. And a cloud comes upon them, and a voice says from the cloud, This is my son, my love. Listen to him. Listen to what he's telling you about who he is, about what it means to follow him. And this event is known as the transfiguration. It's a powerful image of God's glory. It's this awesomeness of his presence. But in the context of Mark 8, of the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, it's much more than just a picture of who Jesus is. It's so significant that as Jesus turns towards the cross, as he begins to walk towards his death, that this is the first thing we see is this glorious vision of the kingdom. And this is a reminder that this hard road of the cross is the very same road as the good road to glory. That it's only in pursuing and following Jesus that we fully experience his glory, his presence, his goodness, his power, his love, his approval. When we stay close to him, when we walk beside him, we can come face to face with, with God's presence in a new way. And what's clear in this passage in Mark 9, the transfiguration, is that this is what we, we need. This is what we were created for since the Old Testament, since creation. We've been longing for more of God's presence. 
And so this is the way of the cross. This is, again, beginning to unfold this picture of discipleship. To experience Jesus, all that he is, all the goodness of life with him, as we take this challenging road, as we lay down our lives for him. And so this is all the context for our passage this morning. Peter, James, and John have been up on this mountain, and they're now coming down from the mountain, coming down from this experience of glory. Again, moving in the direction of the cross. And so they stand at this decision point. How are they going to answer the call? How are these imperfect men, these imperfect followers, going to live out this calling to experience God's presence as they follow Jesus? So let's read our passage. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Mark 9, 14 says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that, corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet. And he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is kind of a strange episode, and on first glance, it doesn't seem like an encouraging start in this turn toward the cross. Because as Jesus and the three disciples come down from the mountain, as they come down from this amazing transcendent experience of the glory of God, they find a mess sitting in front of them. And the contrast couldn't be more clear. From the glory of God on the mountain to the folly of man in the valley. Uh, a few summers ago, I got a chance to go on a missions trip to Japan with uh, some of the youth from our church. And it was an awesome experience. We got to go uh, serve the people there. You know, when you're on missions, you, you experience a deep sense of, of community, of family, feel a deeper sense of God's presence and leading, his calling. So I, I was on a high. I was feeling good. I was on that mountain. And as I was 
flying home, I was just so excited to see Alyssa and Kaya. Now, Grayson wasn't born yet, so I'm not leaving him out intentionally. I was excited to see my family. And I just couldn't wait to be home with them. I couldn't wait to kind of talk more about the trip, to, to share the experience, to share this kind of uh, high that I was on. But as Alyssa was getting ready to pick me up from the airport, Kaya fell off the bed, hit her head, and then started to, to throw up. And so my flight lands. Uh, I'm getting more and more excited to see Alyssa, to see Kaya. I check my phone, and she says, your mom is picking you up. Kaya fell. We're at the hospital. And man, that was just crushing. Now, no offense to my mom. I love my mom. She's not the valley of this story, but I was disappointed that I wasn't seeing Alyssa and Kaya. And, and obviously, the idea of, of not knowing how she was was scary. Now, just for the record, she was fine. They, they came home a couple hours later. But this was a, a, an experience from the mountain of my experience in Japan to the valley of coming home to just all this stuff going on. So imagine how Jesus was feeling when he came from this amazing mountaintop experience to find this picture of faithlessness, of failure. Jesus steps back into the reality of real life. He steps back into a world where uh, darkness and evil are, are prevalent, where they're in power. This, this demon has brought pain and brokenness to this poor family. He steps back into a world of conflict and petty arguments. These teachers of the law just continually missing the point of Jesus' ministry and getting in the way of things. He steps into a world where his closest followers, the men who he's trusting to follow him to the cross and, and to build up his ministry, they've failed to exercise this demon. And they somehow tried to do it without prayer without asking God for help. This is a mess. And so you can sort of understand his cry in, in the verse where he says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? In light of the events of Mark 8 and 9, this is an a, a discouraging start. Can we actually follow Jesus? Are any of us actually up to the task to live out this calling? Maybe the answer is no. Well, they, they bring the boy and the father to Jesus. And this is where I think the story gets it's really interesting. Because the father's approach to Jesus is something different than what we've seen up to this point in Mark. Last month, I talked about the paralytic man from Mark 2. Remember this guy, he's, uh, he can't walk, he's stuck on a stretcher, and, and he, he's so desperate to see Jesus, and he, he has so much confidence that coming to see Jesus would actually help him, that he has his friends dig a hole in the roof, lower him down to the feet of Jesus. And the passage, the scripture tells us that, that Jesus sees him, he sees this faith. He's obviously impressed by his determination, by his boldness, and he not only heals him, but he forgives his sins. Two weeks ago, I talked about the Syrophoenician woman from Mark 7. This woman had a daughter who was possessed by an impure spirit. 
and she wants to see Jesus. She desperately wants to come find him. And so she barges into the house he's staying at on his day off. She breaks, you know, every conceivable cultural norm. And she asks Jesus to heal her daughter. And then even when Jesus says, well, actually, you know, right now, my mission is is to the Jews and, and, and you're a Gentile. She says, hey, listen, I know who you are. I know what you're about. I know your power and I need help now, so help me. And Jesus is like, what an amazing response. What an amazing, faithful thing to say. Your daughter is healed. Now, these pictures of faith are inspiring. But I think they can also leave us feeling maybe a little bit discouraged. Is this what kind of faith it takes to really follow Jesus? And do I have it? Would I respond this way? See, we want to have this kind of faith. We want to believe with this kind of confidence that Jesus is this good, that he's that powerful. We want to believe that he would actually love us and bless us this much. We want to follow Jesus this way, come to him with this kind of confidence to be that kind of Christian. But oftentimes we know, we feel deep down that our own feelings, our own hearts fall, fall far short of this. Because we have doubts. We hesitate. We have other desires and priorities that get in the way of our approach to Jesus that keep us from having this kind of faith, this kind of confidence, this kind of devotion. And we feel that gap between the faith that we see in Scripture and the faith that we have. We see the heights, the mountains of this kind of bold faith and devotion. But we know uh, the valleys of our, our own hearts. And that can be tough to reconcile. It can be discouraging and disheartening. When I was growing up, I felt this gap between me and and my older sister, Tracy. Now, Tracy is probably the smartest person I know. No offense to any of you smart people. But I remember when we were kids, we we had to take this test for the the gate class, the gifted class. And and we both went in, and and it's like a little interview, one-on-one test with with a teacher. And I felt like I did fine. So I came out, and I sat with my mom, and we waited for Tracy. And Tracy proceeded to take like 30 minutes longer with the test, not because she wasn't doing well, but because she was doing so well that the tester wanted to see like how far up she could go. How high can this kid get? Tracy was our school's valedictorian. Back when the SATs were out of 1600, she got a 1560. She went to Stanford for undergrad, and then she went to Harvard for law school. And look, I'm smart enough, but I knew from an early age that I was never going to be at that level. There was always going to be a gap between us, that I was never going to be able to get to where she was. And you know, to be fair, Tracy never rubbed it in my face. My mom did an amazing job never putting any pressure on me. She never made me feel like I had to live up to Tracy. She never compared us. She never in a moment of weakness said, if you were like your sister, not once. 
Thank you. <laughs> but even with that, you feel it. I felt it. I, I knew it was there. I couldn't help but notice, here's where she's at. Here's where I'm at. And when you feel that gap in, in any part of your life, whether it's sibling rivalry or faith, you can't help but be affected by it. I think a lot of times we subconsciously do things to protect ourselves. I remember uh, when I was growing up, the thing that I would do is, you know, kind of change the bar, change the definition of success so that I didn't have to meet that thing I couldn't meet. So I was like, I'm not going to be the smart kid like Tracy. I'm going to be the athlete. I'm going to be the cool kid. I'm going to get a tall white girlfriend and I'm going to marry her. And that worked out pretty good for me. But we say, you know, I can't do that, so I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this really well. Sometimes we see, see the bar, we see how high it is, and we just don't even want to try. There were moments where my, I remember feeling like I don't even want to try to be that smart kid. I never want people to see me trying my hardest and not measuring up. So I'm going to be that kid that, that seems like they don't try hard. And this happens in faith, too. We have a picture of, of the bar in our heads. The paralyzed man, the Syrophoenician woman. Person in our small group. The missionary who's overseas. The youth leader we looked up to when we were kids. And again, these, these people inspire us. They're not bad. But at the same time, we feel the weight of who they are, what they do, and where we're at. We feel the weight of this calling. Take up your cross. Follow me. And so again, sometimes we protect ourselves by changing the standard. We, we might change the definition of what success looks like. I'm going to be the Christian who really serves the poor, who is generous with my money. I'm never going to cuss, and I'm always going to read my Bible. I'm going to sing really loud and be the person who's about worship. None of those things are bad to do, but oftentimes we choose them and we say, you know, this is really what the Christian life is about. Because deep down, the idea of radically following Jesus to the cross is a standard we feel we can't meet. I think, sadly, other times this high bar just makes us want to give up or not try see that calling and we say, hey, I know I'm not that guy. I know I'm not that woman. I'm not that person. So maybe this faith thing, maybe it's not for me. I'm never going to be that kind of Christian, so why try? Jesus invites us to a different way of understanding his calling. Jesus invites us to look at this bar in a far different way. Let's go back to our passage. This father comes to Jesus. He's asking for help. But his request has, has a much different tone than these previous encounters. He doesn't come with bold faith or brash confidence. He's hesitant. He's uncertain. There's a little bit of doubt, maybe. Maybe a little frustration, too. See, he's watched his son suffer from this evil spirit for who knows how long. He's seen these 
really horrible, devastating effects. This demon trying to kill his son, throwing him into fire and water. And now he's watched these disciples, these guys who are supposed to be the cream of the crop of Jesus' followers. He's seen them try and fail to help him. And so his words are dripping with uncertainty. If you think about what he says, there's a lot of hedging his bets here. If, if you can do anything, please help. Like Jesus, I don't know if you can. I don't know if you want to. Maybe. And if you can, I, I don't know how much you can do. I don't know if you can do all of it, but just maybe a little something to help us out. Whatever you can give, I'll take it. And Jesus responds, and again, this is a situation where I don't see it as a rebuke, but instead an invitation to go a little deeper. Jesus says, if you can, do you know who you're talking to? Everything is possible for the one who believes. And we can tell from his response that the Father is strengthened. He's inspired. But notice what doesn't happen. He doesn't jump from doubt to full faith. He doesn't change completely on the spot. He doesn't become this person who's radically ready to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. But it's just a little step forward. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, I believe, but help me with all this stuff in here that has doubt. That's uncertain. That thinks maybe this isn't going to work. And this is such a powerful confession of real, honest faith. It reminds us that faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. We don't need to perfectly believe to be people of faith. We don't have to have everything figured out to follow Jesus. We just need a little bit of faith, a little bit of confidence that Jesus might be who he says he is. That Jesus might be that loving. That he might be that good. And we need the humility to ask for help with the rest. Here's what Keller says about this account. The boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, but help me. That's saving faith. Faith in Jesus instead of oneself. Perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness is reaching that bar, reaching that standard of faith, whatever it is in our minds. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us. And if you wait for that, you'll never come into the presence of God. You must admit that you are not righteous and that you need help. When you can say that, you are approaching God in worship. Keller says, hey, you can't wait until your faith is perfect to start following Jesus, to begin this hard road to the cross. Because if you do, you'll, you'll never get anywhere. Because you can't get there on your own. And so we have to accept that we'll, we'll never get there without asking God to help us reach that next step. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew tells the same story of this man and his son and, and this demon. And it ends with Jesus 
saying these famous words. He tells it a little bit differently. But at the end, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. See, this passage is a reminder of the nature of what faith is really like. The path to following Jesus. It's this reminder that we don't get there in, in one step. We don't get there the same way as other people do. Faith looks different. Our faith isn't perfect right away. It starts small. It starts with doubts. It starts with hesitation. But that's enough for Jesus to work miraculous change in our lives. And so the idea of following Jesus is not about being so faithful, so good, so certain of everything that we come to faith and we just immediately become these people who are like, yep, I'm going to take up my cross and follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. Let's go. Being a faithful Christian doesn't mean that you read a passage like Mark 8:34 and say, hey, I'm 100% there, totally ready, no questions asked. If faith was that easy, the church would look very different. Not just our church, the league church. But instead, faith so much of the time is about just coming to Jesus and saying, hey, here's what I got. Help me with the rest. It's about being honest with God. And just as important, being honest with each other. And saying, hey, I have doubts. I struggle to follow Jesus. I don't always want to be loving. I don't always want to go to church. I don't always want to obey. And I am a wretched, sinful person. But I do have a little bit of faith. I do believe that Jesus is good. I do believe that Jesus loves me. I, I want to believe that he's king. I believe that there's something about the cross and death and resurrection it speaks to my soul. It speaks to who I am. It speaks to what I need. I have a little bit of faith. But I just need help believing more. And I don't want to make this too shameless of a plug, but I, I do think that this really is the heart of baptism. I shared last week that we're going to be uh, doing a baptism on Easter Sunday. And this is something that we really believe in that's important to us as a church. And baptism isn't a statement that your faith is perfect. That you've reached a complete and total trust and you have no doubts. It's not about having the right kind of story that shows off all the things that Jesus has already done in your life. Baptism is one simple step forward. In a way, baptism is the ultimate statement of, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. One of my favorite baptism stories is from the book of Acts, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And this eunuch is, is sitting on a road, and he's reading through Isaiah 53. And given where he comes from, there's a good chance that this eunuch doesn't know much about the Old Testament scriptures, doesn't know much about the kingdom of God, doesn't really know anything about Jesus. And so he's reading from this passage, and he's reading about this coming Messiah who's supposed to restore his people, deliver his people through his suffering. 
And I think a big part of the reason why he's so interested in this is because just chapters later, Isaiah talks about how this deliverance, this salvation was for people like him. Eunuchs, foreigners, the outcast. And he's wondering, man, how, how can I experience this? So he asks Philip, he says, who is this about? Who is going to do this thing? And Philip says, it's, it's about Jesus. Let me tell you some good news. And then moments later, the very same day, probably the very day this eunuch hears the name of Jesus for the first time, they come across some water and the eunuch is like, hey, what should stand in my way of getting baptized? What reason is there for me to not jump in this water and respond in faith? And the answer is nothing. He gets baptized. He didn't really know much. Seems like all he really knew is that this Jesus died for him, suffered for him, so that he could experience this blessing that God had promised, so that he could have new life. And so he hops in the water, not because he had it all figured out, far from it. But he hops in the water because he's eager to experience more. He's eager to step into life with God. Now, obviously, every baptism isn't going to look exactly like this. We don't expect it to. But it reflects this this larger truth from, uh, from Mark, that a little bit of faith and a whole lot of humility can lead to more of God. And that really is the invitation of baptism. You say, hey, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have this whole faith thing reconciled in my mind. But I believe something true about Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he's good. I believe he loves me. And I need help with the rest. Baptism is about inviting the Holy Spirit to, to play a larger role in your life. To wash over you like water. Immerse you in the presence of God. Baptism is inviting your community, the church, to come around you and support you and help you, walk with you. And we think baptism does matter to make this public confession. It doesn't change anything about who we are or how God sees us, but I think it changes something in us about how we feel. It's always meaningful to take a step forward and to see God respond when we ask for help in faith. So if you're beginning to follow Jesus or you've been following Jesus for a long time and you you haven't been baptized, we really want to encourage you to take that step forward. Whatever that step is, maybe it's just come to the class next Sunday in between services. You're not committed to anything. Just find out more. You can come talk to me after service. I'll, I'll be at a table right out there. Ask questions. Dive a little deeper. Talk to any of the staff. Talk to a friend. Ask yourself this question, how might I experience God more if I respond with just a little bit of faith? Now before we close, I want to make it clear, baptism is not the only way to respond to this passage. And wherever we are in this process, in this growth process of the Christian life, we always want to be asking, what's the next step forward? It's so important to acknowledge our own doubts, 
our own fears, the steps we don't want to take, the ways we're afraid to respond, the parts of the road that, that seem too hard. Sometimes the further along we are, the more hesitant we are to admit my faith isn't perfect. I've been here for 30 years, and here's the doubts that I still have. And in light of our passage this morning, we have to show ourselves grace and show each other grace. As we struggle together, as we are imperfect together, And so this is an invitation this morning to ask Jesus for help in our unbelief, to ask Jesus, hey, would you cover that distance? Would you cover that gap between who I am and who I want to be? Maybe for you that step is getting connected to community. Maybe it's to join a small group for the first time. Maybe it's to start serving in a ministry. You've been thinking, man, I'm not the kind of person who does that. I, I don't have the faith, I don't have the skills, I don't have the gifts. God couldn't use me. Maybe it's to start giving, start tithing, to donate to the Community Compassion Fund. Maybe it's to address the anger in your life, the impatience, the lust, the broken relationships, the hurt feelings. There are so many parts of our life where we need to have a little bit of faith to take one step forward and allow God to do the rest. So this morning, I want to invite you to come before him with a faithful but humble heart, with these words, with this attitude. God, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me to take the next step forward. Let's pray.